When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks and a Move. I'm Corey Johnson. It's August 11th. This is episode 73. Well, just ahead, WW, used to know it by Weight Watchers, they find that post-COVID, people don't want to go on a diet. And post-COVID, no one's getting colds, which is bad news for companies that sell cold medicine. We'll take a look. And we take a look at a very different way. Lemonade sells insurance with Lemonade's Chief Financial Officer, Tim Bixby. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms like uh, Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Hit the subscribe button and catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, BizPod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. We're explaining the business stories behind stocks and a move. And we drill down on a handful of them. Joining me right now, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster with the three most important developments in the world of business today. Corey, let's start with inflation. Inflation remained elevated in July, but showed evidence of cooling as the economic recovery continued amid pandemic-related supply problems and signs the recent rise in infections from coronavirus is starting to crimp some business activity. The U.S. Labor Department says consumer prices rose 5.4% in July from a year earlier, the same pace as in June, where we saw the highest 12-month rate since 2008. On a monthly basis, however, price pressures weakened, and the CPI, and the, as you know, the CPI measures what consumers pay for goods and services, including groceries, clothes, restaurant meals, recreation, and cars. A huge chunk of that was cars, used cars, prices up year over year, 41%, a little bit off what it was, a 45% of last uh, month, but still a substantial portion of the increase in inflation was just the pricing on used cars. Now, Corey, let's get to Southwest Airlines. Southwest says the recent surge in COVID-19 cases is causing bookings to slow and cancellations to rise. The airline says that while demand for the upcoming Labor Day weekend remained healthy, the recent slowdown would make it difficult to turn a profit in the third quarter. Now, that excludes the impact of government payroll assistance, and that is even after a fair sale, a fair sale designed to stoke the return of business traffic in the fall. The Southwest's move reverses airline executives' bullish tone just a few weeks ago. Yeah, and this is the, I think, really important because this is the first really big business to tell us that things are slowing down because of Delta. We hadn't seen any big companies, at least I haven't seen a really big company see this until, until Southwest. 
And finally, let's get to uh, the, our third story of the day. Securities regulators are rethinking rules on popular plans that let corporate executives sell stock without vo- violating insider trading provisions. Now, these plans allow executives to create schedules for buying and selling shares in the future. In theory, a predetermined sale, even if it comes at a fortuitous time, wouldn't be based on inside information. But years of research has shown that the reality is much more complicated. Executives might establish a plan to sell shares that very day, and they can modify plans without disclosing what they are doing. So SEC Chairman Gary Gensler is expressing skepticism about the plans, and in June, he asked the commission's staff to recommend changes that would curb abuses. Lawmakers called for changes last year after pharmaceutical executives developing COVID-19 vaccines sold $500 million worth of shares. Many of those sales came under this this type of plan and they were modified after vaccine trials began. The companies say the trades followed the rules and uh, no one has been accused of wrongdoing. Right. The problem is the rules. These 10B5 plans are you know, they were well-intentioned, perhaps. I don't know. But they're baloney. I mean, if a CEO sells a bunch of shares and then they, they set up a, a plan to sell every month, then they don't they don't like the price. They just stop selling it for a while. Or as you say, they create a new plan the day they want to dump a bunch of shares. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Hopefully the SEC makes these things a little more uh, tightly regulated. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? WW Company. Or w- one w- would w- say WW. WW, yeah. The old-timey people. The old-timey people go WW. Yeah, I guess so, WW, but WW. WW shares, which stands for Weight Watchers, are used to. Shares fell 24% today, and they've dropped 2% in a year. What is going on with WW? Yeah, 24%. So they reported re- yeah. uh, earnings for the second quarter, uh, $312 million, down 7% over last year. They had 4.9 million subscribers uh, at the end of the quarter. Um, uh, their digital subscribers up only 6%. Um, the, what they found is that people after COVID in the summer didn't want to diet. They wanted to party. That's the short of it. Uh, so in the oh, okay. first quarter, Fair they enough. found that people, yeah, well, they found that people gained a lot of weight during COVID, right? We've heard that from other companies. I think it was Levi's that told us that 35% of Americans saw that their waist size had changed not always getting bigger, but changing during the pandemic. A lot of people gained a lot of weight. And uh, the company in the first quarter saw an uptick in their business. They thought, oh, maybe this won't just be a seasonal thing for us. We're going to get second quarter and people wanting to lose weight over the summer. The prior seasonality of their business would no longer apply. That was their hope. That's what they told everyone was going to happen. Well, that proved a little ambitious, shall we say. Um, uh, the rationale of, of in- expecting increased spending just didn't materialize. Um, and, you know, I have to say that uh, the CEO, uh, when she got on the call, was very um, uh, apologetic right at the start of the call. She said, look, we thought this was going to happen. It just didn't happen. When they were asked a little bit more about it and whether this would continue, particularly uh, in a lot of markets like in North America where they're, they are biggest, that people will are going to want to diet or they're going to wait entirely until next year and and go right back to those seasonal trends, but uh, enjoy those uh, those love handles in the summer in ways they never had before. Here's Amy O'Keefe, the chief financial officer. With people in many markets, particularly our largest market, um, North America in U.S., coming out, people wanted to focus more on their enjoyment than immediately going into a weight loss program, particularly 
in the summer months. Additionally, we've been following the data points of everything from Google Trends, other data points, um, and we have seen suppression overall in the weight loss category. So it was a combination of those things that did not enable us to achieve our original expectations for the quarter. Now, I'll tell you that not every company out there in health and wellness saw this trend. So Weight Watchers or WW says that it was everybody. I don't know if the beach looked more um, jiggly to you, Isaac, this summer. It it actually doesn't at all. It looks actually much more fit. <laughs> Well, that's because the like people you another, hang out with are in fantastic shape. But I mean, shape. I think it might be the circles. You just go to in. a better beach than I do. Well, obviously, but you know, you know, I what think does that, that mean obviously. Well, Fine. no one can see what we look like on this podcast, but um, hey, <laughs> you set me up really well for that. Oh no, man. but I think that it depends on the region. You know, listen, we live in different. Every every region's got their own thing, and here in LA, you know, there's not much love given to anyone that. You know, doesn't takes, look beautiful. Takes their foot off the gas for as far as health and wellness goes. So you know, um, <laughs> you well, got to keep up I, with I, the Kardashians. I a super, and it is so hard to without that surgical knife. But I digress. <laughs> um, uh, I think I think that uh, it was an interesting call. We'll look if we see this from other companies. I will say, yeah. like a, again, a lot of other companies are not reporting what Weight Watchers is or WW is reporting. So I think their credibility took a hit today. Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to look at a little company, a lot littler company than it was earlier this week, Hirecar. Hirecar, this is a new company to me. H-Y-R-E shares down 49% today. Wow. But they're up, shares for Hirecar are up 173% in a year. So tell me about Hirecar. Yeah, so this stock is trading at 10 bucks a share called 985. Uh, just a few days ago, it was trading, weeks ago, it was trading at $24 a share. So Absolutely getting destroyed. It's about a 200 million market cap. This was another Network One IPO. Uh, last uh, This IPO from 2018. Last time we talked about a Network One IPO, it was in Q2's biggest losing stock, Tan Rushwing Holdings. Well, Hirecar was meant to be a car sharing platform for people who want to drive for ride sharing companies like Lyft and Uber, but who don't have good enough cars. The notion was they could not rent a car. They would rent a, an individual's car. So Isaac, you or I could rent out our fancy car to a higher car and higher car put in the hands of an Uber driver for the day. That was their notion. The business has struggled. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, they got a tremendous valuation on not a lot of revenues. Uh, uh -huh. The business has struggled. They struggled finding cars. Well, I mean, are you just, are you, are you surprised? I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> I, I don't, mean, I don't want yeah. anyone else driving my car. Um, well, well, that's that's their business model. Uh, was was to Bless you know, and, um, and they you know, and so they only had nine million in revenue for the quarter for a company like I said that had about a seven eight hundred million million market cap just a few weeks ago. The uh -huh. problem is they couldn't find the cars, so they partnered with a company called Ameridrive to find the cars. Um, but uh, as they put it, uh, Ameridrive has trended lower than expected. Um, they barely acknowledged any problems in the conference call, even though the numbers were not uh, up to Wall Street's liking. Um, but if you listen carefully uh, to their uh, trended less than expected, here is the CEO, Joe Fernari. 
We've trended slightly lower than expected with Ameridrive supply, partly because HireCar has never had a fleet operator scale at the speed that Ameridrive has, but primarily because Ameridrive experienced some car financing constraints that are short-term in nature. We're in the process of ironing out these scaling and financial constraints, and in the near term, we've been able to offset the slower ramp in cars with a steeper ramp in take rates. So I, I don't know what a steeper ramp in take rates means, but um, they, uh, you know, they only do a few thousand cars. They say they're going to get to 50,000 cars in three years. Um, there was some skepticism on the uh, conference call. But uh, so that's 50,000 people saying, yeah, here's my keys, Mr. Uber driver. Here's my keys, Mr. Lyft driver. No, not, they don't even know the Lyft driver, right? They just turn it over to hire and hire turns it over to the Uber and Lyft driver. Uh, this is giving me a lot of anxiety, man. Well, anyone who's along the stock yesterday has got some worse feelings because, as you mentioned, uh, the truth of what was happening to their business model caused the stock to fall nearly 50% in the day. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Perigo PLC. Perigo trades under PRGO. Shares fell 12% today and they've lost 18% over the past year. What's going on with Perigo? So crummy performance from Perigo because the business is performing poorly. Net sales grew just $3.4 million in the most recent quarter to $281 million. Um, but these guys sell cold and flu stuff, which isn't good when there's not a lot of cold and flu. Let's look at, Isaac, if we may, Australia. I love Australia. Who doesn't? I What's bet they don't have love? jiggly bodies on that on those beaches. Um, I, I can only hope. Uh, so uh, in Australia, what they don't have is a lot of cold and flu. They have had such strict requirements around COVID in terms of masking, in terms of uh, shutting yeah. down the entire country, in terms of shutting down travel, and uh, that they haven't had, uh, that they've really got a hold of their big COVID problems early. And interestingly, they haven't had a lot of cold and flu since. Experts who spent decades studying seasonal flus in Australia say they've never seen anything like it. I found a, a news article in the Sydney Morning Herald quoting someone from some of, from the Doherty Institute saying the cold and flu is either eradicated or at such low levels we're having trouble detecting it at all. Wow. That's amazing. Right. That's great. It's great. It's amazing. But it's again, it's not good if you're in the business of selling cold and flu remedies, which is what Perigo does. So uh, when asked, so they, they announced their earnings today and they just said, hey, people aren't getting cold and they aren't getting the flu. And as a result, we just had a really bad quarter. We hope people get sick again, they basically said. Well, that's not exactly what they hear. So here's exactly what CEO Murray Kessler said when asked, hey, what happens if we get an Australia here? Australia? Yeah, I think Australia is an example of what would happen if the world shut down, but that is not the norm. Um, or Australia, and we have an Australian board member who is, it, it, it are still in complete lockdown and complete mask requirements. And, you know, I caveated my, my, my comments that if, if we went that far backwards again, sure, that would be a, you know, a, a risk to our plan. Um, as it's happening now and schools reopening and, and, and lockdowns um, pretty much gone around the world with, you know, there are some exceptions. Um, we, we think things, you know, will, will open up and we've already seen a higher level of, a significantly higher level of illnesses and you see it in the consumer takeaway numbers that are so dramatic. So 
you know, if you want me to ask if there, if the world was to, the Delta variant or some other variant was to shut the world all the way back down again, would it have an impact on our business? Of course it would. But, you know, we're, we, I think there'll be some, some masking measures, but it doesn't at least feel that way to us that, that anywhere in the world is, real, well, is willing to shut it down that hard. They, everybody needs to get the world vaccinated. So a different reason for wanting to get the world vaccinated or a second reason. Yeah, right. So that people start getting the cold and the flu again, I guess. Interesting take from the CEO of Perigo. All right, coming up say, next. I, I got to oh, yes, say please. something. I got to say something. Him mentioning that like going backwards is the wearing, wearing masks and all of that. Give me a break, man. You got to wear masks. Let's not call it backwards. Let's call it being progressive and fighting this freaking disease. I take offense to it. Consider Duly myself noted. offended. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for noting that. Mission accomplished. That's, my that's all I have to say. That's all I have to say. You sure? No, but we now? can go on. We can keep oh, going. Geez. Yeah. Coming up next, our guest, the chief financial officer from that really interesting and sometimes controversial company, the insurance company, Lemonade. Tim Bixby joins us right after this. And the drill down is brought to you by Indeed. Here's an existential question for every business. When you're hiring, how do you know who's really best for the role? Well, you can save time and screen for quality candidates with the skills you need with Indeed assessments. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple to attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. With Indeed's assessments, choose from 135 skill tests to help make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide and use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to update your job post at Indeed.com slash drilldown. That's right, a $75 credit for drilldown listeners. It's Indeed.com slash drilldown. That's Indeed.com slash drilldown. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod and check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Hi, right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by Tim Bixby from Lemonade. I gave him a promotion last week when I mistakenly said he's the CEO, hearing his voice wrong on the conference call. He is just the chief financial officer. I say just, uh, not at all. But Tim, we're glad to have you on. Uh, we covered your earnings briefly last uh, last week on the show, and here you are to tell us about your really interesting take on the insurance business. Um, describe to me what Lemonade is and what you guys are trying to do. I'll do that. And by the way, that, that CEO mistake, it's the second time that's happened to me. And I learned quickly to correct that mistake immediately uh, to avoid any, any repercussions. <laughs> Before your CEO so, finds out. Exactly. No, you know what? It's, exactly it's right. when I listen to these conference calls and someone jumps in and I get the voice, you know, I, I don't think I've made the mistake yet, but I'm apt to do so. I try so hard <laughs> to make sure I get the right one. I find myself quite often going back in the conference call when someone introduces himself to make sure the voice sounds identical. But yeah. I, yes, I completely screwed that up and I apologize. So, so Lemonade is an insurance company, plain and simple. Uh, but, but as with most things in insurance, there's two ways to describe everything. 
So there's the insurancy way, and then there's kind of the real world way. Uh, so the, the real world way I describe Lemonade is we're the most delightful insurance company on the planet. Uh, and delight is not really something you hear much in the world of insurance. I said a bar as well, but please. <laughs> that's what's made us uh, stand out. So uh, your offerings, um, you you took an interesting approach to the marketplace to try to build a business and build your offerings. Um, explain to me why pet insurance is a something I should buy, but maybe more importantly, why this was a way to start building your business. Yeah, we we approach the business in a, in a number of ways that we think are fundamentally different, and the the product uh, portfolio and how how that rolled out is definitely one of them. The the way I kind of think about it is. Uh, most businesses tend to be built uh, uh, on something that looks like a pyramid, right? You start with the big fat base, that's the core product you're offering, and you kind of work your way up to the top. And as you work your way up, it gets a little harder, and maybe the markets get smaller, and you, you kind of try and you throw you some build stuff your, on, right? Build your business that way. Lemonade did the opposite. We kind of flipped the pyramid upside down, and we actually started in in one of the smaller but unloved parts of the business, which was renters insurance. And pet insurance is kind of like renter's insurance in that it's pretty small in the scheme of insurance. You know, insurance is a you know a trillion to five trillion dollar market worldwide, depending on how you you count it. But pet insurance and renter's insurance uh, are, are similar in that they're relatively underpenetrated. Everybody rents if they don't own, typically, unless they're living with mom and dad. And most people have pets. Something like two thirds of Americans have pets. Two two thirds or so of our customers have pets. But we chose to enter those sort of less um, less loved or, or focus on parts of the market because it gave us a lot of running room. Uh, and we and we did pet in a, what I thought was a pretty unique way is pet insurance typically over time has been sold and developed as a, a way to insure your stuff, just like the rest of insurance. I got to insure my table or my bike or my laptop or my house. Now I'm going to insure my pet. But that's not how that's how people think about their pets. People think about their pets as part of the family. As like little furry kids. And so we we all kind of get this, but insurance companies haven't really reacted to that. And we reacted to that in a huge way. Everything we wrote, everything we did in the product, everything we described, uh, it very much speaks to this love of pets as part of the family. We're insuring your your family members and not your your possessions. And it, it it's visible in the product. And I think people really reacted well to that. Um, uh, all right. So that's that's nice marketing, but you've also suggested on in uh, you know when you guys went public and so on that that pet was an entree into other business models because you could learn so much about an individual or a, a, a client through what they do with their pet insurance or who they are based on how they insure their pet. It's it's true. I mean, we're, we're very data driven. One of the benefits of starting an insurance company in 2016, which is essentially when the the business got going, is you have no legacy by definition, you're a new business, and you have all the tools and capabilities and data technology tools that, that, that are at our disposal today. So we're able to build something that was integrated across the whole customer lifecycle and customer platform, but start with pet, start with renters, add condo, add homeowners. So, so our approach was really not so much about the products, even though we're building the, the products and selling the products, but about the customer. Who is the customer? What do they want? What do they react to? What do they love? What do they hate? And because we thought about that, the the vision was, let's build all the products over time that these customers want. They may start a little young. They may start uh, uh, urban. They may have a pet. They may rent an apartment. But over time, all those folks are going to look like 
you and me and the rest of Americans and Europeans, which is where we do business today, they're going to get a little older and a little wealthier and have more stuff and, and need more coverage. And so over time, we're adding these other, other coverage types. You know, PET was just sort of a stop on the way to adding, expanding in homeowners, adding uh, life insurance. And we're is there, to is there uh, data that you learn from somebody uh, with, you know, you, you talk about being data driven. What kind of data do you get from a pet owner that you're a pet insurer or that you wouldn't get otherwise? So think about this. When you acquire a customer in a totally digital way, you get a ton of information. We collect something like 1,700 data points for every customer that becomes a customer, whether it's they're a renter customer, pet, doesn't matter what, because they're interacting on a phone through an app and you get all the metadata around that interaction that you normally wouldn't get if you're a traditional company selling to an insurance agent or you're in an office or you're filling out an app on a, on a website. So for example, we'll know if you're buying insurance from us, are you buying it at noon on Tuesday or are you buying it at three in the morning on Saturday? That's a fundamentally different kind of customer. And you can kind of guess, you know, right. what it might tell you about the customer. Are they, do they have an iPhone or an Android? Do they have the newest one or one that's three years old? Uh, do they think hard about our offering and evaluate the, the defaults? Or do they just take what we offer first out of the gate? All of those little bits and pieces of information are, are interesting and really have nothing to do with this, the specific risk of the pet. That's a, that's a thing that's happening as well. But does it have anything to do with the specific risk of their life insurance or their it, home insurance? It does. It does because it gives you a profile, a feel for the person. And based on all of this data, it gives you a much more wholesome, fulsome view of that person. So let's so pause this. So I, well, so let me pause this. So you've, so you've got a um, stoned pet insurance shopper at 3.30 in the morning in, uh, uh, in trying to insure his pit bull is not the same as the uh, 10 a.m. Uh, careful shopper of... I don't know, all five different kinds of pet insurance who's driving a Prius and maybe someday if you ever offer car insurance, we'll be, we'll be there for you. Exactly right. And all of those bits of information you just summarized are sort of lost in the ether through a traditional insurance binding interaction, but it's all captured by us. So things we learn about pet owners help us with renters and vice versa through all the different product lines. So your uh, so let's talk about your loss ratios then and what that tells us right or how that's going. I like I like the concept. Um, in practice, is it is it is is it too early to tell? I mean, your gross loss excuse me your gross loss ratio in the most recent quarter uh, was seventy four percent. A year before it was sixty seven percent. So what what does that mean? For what what does that tell so, us about the? So you're 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 having more losses now. You can govern that as best you want, but uh, more losses would seem like it's worse for an insurer. Uh, technically, yes. Uh, loss and loss ratios, you're, you're right. That's sort of a fundamental measure of the health of the business. It's, it's basically what are you paying out versus what you're taking in as premiums. Right. So we paid out 74% of all the dollars we took in or earned as, as premiums. Now, we've done something that's hard to do in insurance. Over the past three or four years, we've grown very rapidly and the loss ratio has come down, has improved dramatically. In insurance, it's usually one or the other. You got to pick one. You can do one or the other, but you can't do both at sure. the same time. Because of our approach, because of the data conversation we just had and the data we collect, we were actually able to bring our loss ratio initially was 300% plus, down to 200, down to 100. And now it's down sort of in a normalized range that you see across insurance companies. 60, 70, 80% is a pretty common range for right. the largest, you know, most established insurance companies. 
And so, and and yet, it's it's been going up a little bit on a year-over-year basis, at least most recent quarter, sixty-seven to seventy-four percent. Is is that noise? Is that because you're looking at it from the window of three hundred percent, or is that is there some meaningful change, or is it new yeah. new offerings? That's vol- it's volatility number one. So in any given quarter, you're gonna it's gonna move. So it's not like a a traditional tech gross margin or something where it's kind of a a more a harder number. So in certain quarters, it's going to be a little higher and a little lower depending on what happened that quarter. Uh, and that's driven by the weather, uh, among other things, yep. can, can drive that number up and down. And you suggested um, that we should expect 75% going forward. The 67 was an anomaly. That's kind of our target. Yeah. In the 75% or, or less range, we do pay a little bit of a what we call the a, sort of a new product penalty. So newer products that are a little less mature, they tend to have higher, higher loss ratio. The customers are younger in their cohorts. You know, they haven't aged as in, in as part of your business. And as that shifts, as a customer goes from a first-year customer to a second year to third year and on, their loss ratio tends to come down. Their retention rates go up. All, all those sort of good things happen as the customer base ages. But our customer base is very young. Half our customers are first-year customers because we're growing at a uh, such a rapid clip. Um, you talk about in your most recent quarter about um – the relationship with the reinsurers. And I don't, you know, pardon my ignorance, and I've read a lot of annual reports, but from a lot of insurers, and I still have so much to learn. But you talk about your quote share reinsurance program. What is that? Yeah, so reinsurance, uh, you know, plain and simple is uh, insurance for insurance companies. Uh, it's very common that insurance companies go out and, and reinsure, you know, the, the insurance they're providing their basically, customers. Basically, uh, one might even think about, tell me if this is wrong, think about your company as, just as much of marketing company as anything else, where you're gathering customers, you're issuing policies, but the risk is being held somewhat by lemonade, but also m- maybe more so by the reinsurer. That's right, and that's right. And and the, our, the structure we have in place that you referred to, the, the quota share reinsurance, is we basically bring in business and then we take a portion of that, 75%, so it's significant. 75% of those premiums that we collect go to the reinsurers and 75% of the losses also go to the reinsurers. And so we're insulated. So in, in the case of, you know, in the first quarter of this year, there was a big freeze in Texas. Crazy event. Nobody right. expected it. A real sort of a black swan event. Three quarters of our losses, which were, you know, significant, were borne by the reinsurers. Uh, one quarter retained by us. And that's really the purpose of that reinsurance is for those very unexpected events, even for an insurance company. Like we expect lots of bad stuff to happen. That's our business. But an event like what happened in Texas is out of the norm, even for insurance companies. And that's what reinsurance is really for. So that relationship appears to be changing. You said in July 2020, you secured 55 of the 75 basis points in a three-year program. The remaining 20 were up for renewal annually. So is that something you said you're going to take that down from 75 to 70? Um, does that mean the reinsurers are less interested in reinsuring you or you or and or you're taking on more risk and or? You want to take on more risk. It's uh, it, it's a it's a bit of each of those, uh, and maybe I'll try and try and pull them together. So, w- number one, we have optionality. We our balance sheet is much stronger today than it was a year ago when we put this original structure in place. We have billion plus dollars of cash. Uh, did not have that a year ago, and so we have a little more flexibility to take on a little bit more risk. That is a change. Two, we we put this reinstructure reinsurance structure in place as it is for a reason. Two thirds of it is on a three-year deal. One third of it is on a one-year deal. So the part you referred to is, is the part that renewed this year. We did have a couple of players who 
were providing reinsurance to us, their exposure to us had doubled in a year because we're our business is essentially doubling. That's very rare. Most of their customers are growing at two or five or 10 or 20%, not 100% or 90%. So they wanted more. They asked for more. And we because we don't need more and they wanted uh, terms that were a little bit uh, better for them, worse for us, we said, no, we're happy with 70%. And that, that's how we made that that adjustment from 75 to, to 70, 70%. And we'll do it again in a year from now when another, uh, that 15% tranche comes up for renewal. But the bulk of it is for two more years. So would we expect that, that so in other words, you you are going to be taking more risk here. You're going to, you know, a, a 500 basis point change in your risk profile. It seems like a lot for a, a, an insurance company. It's 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 modest, uh, and, and remember the we're, we're taking five percent more risk, but we're still uh, uh, have thirty percent exposure. So right. it you know five points you can kind of argue both ways, I guess. Um, I think uh, w- w- the way we think about it is again we could we could have zero and still be just fine. You you take on significant risk, but you're also retaining all the profit. Reinsurance, by definition, is a profitable business. So, so we're we're giving away a little bit of profit in exchange for that that protection. That trade off is 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 pretty reasonable. Um, but if we get to a point where we feel our loss ratio is in the seventies and predictable, we we could take all of that risk on our book, and it wouldn't be an existential uh, risk for us. Now, your um, uh, kind and helpful public relations people sent me and they sent us an email uh, complaining that when I said that your revenues were down. Uh, they weren't. They're up uh, from the first quarter to the second quarter. But uh, I tend to look at revenues and things like this on a year-over-year basis in seasonal businesses. And, and some are, you know, one can argue which businesses are seasonal. Your revenues are down year-over-year. Your marketing spending doubled, more than doubled. And so I, I, how, how should we look at that? When you, you know, you would think if you double your marketing spending, your revenues would go up. You would. Uh, and this is one <laughs> of those uh, insurance things where there's two answers for everything because of insurance. Um, so our revenue was indeed down our gap revenue, uh, in insurance gap revenue is influenced heavily by reinsurance. And so, uh, because of the reinsurance structure, it lessens our revenue by about 75%. So it's technically accurate from a gap perspective, but it doesn't capture the, the economics of the business. Our enforced premium grew 90%. If we didn't have reinsurance in place, our revenue would grow roughly, you know, in line with that in the 80 or 90 percent range. So it's one of those things. And we, we talked about this um, for the two quarters leading up to the IPO and then for the four quarters following. Uh, this is a, a nuance of gap accounting and insurance. And we have to highlight and, and let people know why that is. Um, and it'll, it'll, we'll be in Q3, we'll be sort of past it because the year on year comparisons uh, will, will be more normalized. But definitely look at enforced premium, definitely look at gross earned premium. And, and these are all other metrics we disclose so people can see what's going on. Yeah, enforced premium basically is how much, how much you've insured, how many dollars of, of risk you've right. insured. And that's maybe the big number. That's um, right. Well, uh, just a fascinating company, interesting to watch what you guys are doing. And, and we will continue to do so. Tim Bixby is Chief Financial Officer of Lemonade. And uh, Tim, we appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Right, coming up next, we're going to have the drill down bite that one number. It tells us a whole lot. We're going to give you that Inforce premium number for Lemonade when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. 
That's era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to Drilled On in any of your favorite podcast platforms, not least TuneIn, where you can get to hear us at three times speed. Get that podcast done with. You get 10 minutes really fast. I sound like one of Elvin or the Chipmunks, uh, but there's one of the many places you can listen to the Drill Down and enjoy it on a daily basis. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with that drill down bite. And yes, it relates to Lemonade, our insurance company uh, guest. And uh, they didn't force premium for this company, growing dramatically. So as I mentioned, their revenues were down on a year-over-year basis. But their enforced premium for the second quarter was $296.8 million. There's your drill down bite, the one number that means a whole lot. $296.8 million. That's up 91% from the previous year. Now, interestingly, their customer count up only 48% year-over-year. So a 91% increase in how much insurance they've got out there, Isaac, uh, even as their customers only increasing by 48%, but they're spending a lot more um, on a, uh, a marketing basis. Takes money to make money, Corey, as I always tell you every day. Listen, to be clear, they don't make any money yet, but maybe they will someday. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this one. It's a, it's a, it's a much criticized company and uh, one to keep an eye on because they're, 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 I think the change in that reinsurance and how much reinsurers are willing to back them um, is a pretty big deal. All right, well, that's it for The Drill Down. We appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.